2: Hi, it's Anna. And this episode with Ellen Burstyn is one of my all time favorite Death, Sex, and Money shows. It's an example of what I'm proud that Death, Sex, and Money adds to our world right now when we need more conversations that are complicated, curious, honest, and sometimes uncomfortable. And you know, one of the uncomfortable things I try to be direct about on this show is money. And I'm going to be direct with you about that right now. It takes money to make this show. For us to travel and report stories, to do live shows, to put together big projects like our student loan series. And your support, your pitching in with your fellow listeners, is our most important source of funding. But right now, less than 0.3% of people who listen to Death, Sex, and Money have donated. An even smaller percentage have signed up to support us on an ongoing basis as sustaining members, which is the kind of reliable support that helps all of the shows here at WNYC Studios plan and grow. I want us to at least get to 1% of listeners of Death, Sex, and Money, and I know we can do it. Join in and give what you can Here is your chance to be part of the 1%. So if you like this show and you want to keep it going, we need you to donate now. At a time when it feels like there's a lot going wrong with our world. I'm trying to direct my money to things I believe in. I hope death, sex, and money is one of those things for you. So please sign up to become a sustaining member of the show and chip in what you can every month, along with your fellow listeners. If you can give $8 a month, we've got a special new way for you to show your death, sex, and money pride. More on that later. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Or if you're in the U.S., text DSM to the number 70101 to get started. Thank you for listening and for helping us continue to grow and build this death, sex, and money community. Here's Ellen Burstyn.
0: See, everybody thinks acting is pretending, and it's the opposite. You don't go to a great acting teacher to learn how to pretend better. You go to learn how to tell the truth. And that's the hardest and and most challenging thing to do. This is Death, Sex,
2: and Money. Why should I fear death? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot.
0: Sex, sex, sex. Wait, wait, wait.
2: And need to talk about
0: more. Oh, I, I like money.
2: I'm Anna Sale. If you're a movie fan, you know Ellen Burstyn. She's in a lot of the greats. The Last Picture Show, The Exorcist, Requiem for a Dream... On TV, there's been Big Love, Louie, Gunsmoke. She even had her own sitcom in the 1980s called The Ellen Burstyn Show. You get a sense of her central place in acting history, walking the hallway of her apartment.
0: Tell me what room you like.
2: The walls are lined with framed awards, certificates, and honorary degrees. But the glitz of this public life stops at her bedroom door. And that's where we sat down to talk. In wicker furniture next to a huge picture window overlooking Central Park.
0: I love to be among the plant world.
2: It's New York, so you can sometimes hear buses rumble by below. But it still felt like a warm oasis. It's full of
0: crystals because they catch the light and reflect the light. The fabrics are purples, aquas, so they, and whites. Playing with colors is one of my
2: hobbies. And lots of plants— And at different corners of the room, she set up
0: different altars. I have Ganesha and Saraswati and Jesus. So there's a sacredness to this room. This room, which is full of light, some people choose a room to go to sleep in. Other people choose a room to wake up in. Uh. (laughs) So this is a room to wake up in.
2: Waking up. That's what a lot of Ellen Burstyn's story is about the things she's realized over her 81 years. And there's so much good stuff here. We're going to go longer than usual this episode. Waking Up is also what my favorite Ellen Burstyn movie is about. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore is about a mom who is suddenly single and has to figure out how to make money to support her son. So she hits the road and leaves her small town behind.
0: Mom, are we in Arizona yet? If you ask me that one more time, I'm going to beat you to death.
2: When Ellen Burstyn made the movie, she had just left an abusive marriage, her third, and was raising a son. She won an Oscar for this performance.
0: Mom, I'm bored. Well, so am I. What do you want from me, card tricks?
2: I had to ask Ellen Burstyn first about my favorite scene. It's when her character Alice is flirting with David, this strapping, divorced rancher played by Chris Kristofferson.
0: They've just kissed for the first time. Your brother taught you how to kiss. Well, I don't mean he demonstrated. He told me that the worst thing that can happen is if a a boy feels like he's put his lips in a bowl of wet oatmeal. (laughs)
2: That scene (laughs) in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, where you're talking with Chris Christofferson about
0: who taught you how to kiss, was that scripted or ad-libbed? That was scripted from a story of mine. We went to see The Postman Always Rings
2: Twice, so it was a real story about about your brother teaching you how to kiss uh-huh. and teaching you
0: wrong about yeah. how to kiss. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, my older brother was the authority on everything for me, and uh, I don't remember how it first got communicated that it was very important to squeeze your lips tight when you kiss somebody because you didn't want to uh, get all sloppy and spit on the other person. And then we went to see A Postman Always Rings twice. And just as they come together, they both open their mouths. <laughs> and thought, uh, oh, my God, don't they know how to kiss? What's and, the matter I with them? and I quickly turn turned brother. to my brother who was sitting next to me in the movie theater to see what he had to say about that. <laughs> and he didn't flinch. He just kept looking at the screen. And I thought, hmm, that's very curious. I thought you were supposed to close your lips tight. And then a few days later... He said, uh, Ed, that was my nickname then. Well, i I've been thinking. thinking. <laughs> <Ow>. I think <laughs> maybe <laughs> you're supposed to open Part your lips a little, little. bit when you kiss. Uh, God bless him. <laughs> God, I had my work cut out for me. So, you, Ed, he called you Ed. You, you grew up Edna Ray? My, my name was Edna Ray Galuli, and my nickname was Ed. What was little Edna Ray like as a little girl? You know, I just realized the other day... I was picturing myself as a child and I realized that whenever I picture myself as a like as 7 to 12 year old that period I always see myself in my girl scout uniform. I think I was pretty much a girl scout. And when I think about it now I'm pretty much a girl scout. <laughs> what do you mean? Um uh, Having a sense of honor and integrity and doing the right thing and um, being kind to others and being helpful. A Girl Scout's always helpful. And um, I guess that's basically it. That's kind of my general ethos <laughs> is to be as helpful as possible.
2: Yeah, when I think about you, I think of of someone who comes off as very warm and kind, but Your iron-clad spine is always very clear somehow, even through that warmth, which is kind of interesting to think of Girl Scouts not as meek, but as tough little girls.
0: Yeah. Well, I was tough because I had a tough mother. Yeah. She ruled with an iron hand, an iron fist. A psychic I met once looked at me and said, Oh, yes your mother was quite uh, strong, wasn't she? And I said, yes. And she said, hmm, it must have been like being brought up by General Patton. Hmm. (laughs) And it kind of was. So um, it taught me to be strong. And not just strict but cruel, your mother sometimes. Um, She had a temper. And when she got angry, watch out. And she got angry pretty easily. When
2: did you realize you were beautiful? At what age?
0: <sighs> That's an interesting question. Um, I don't think of myself as beautiful. I know that I get a lot of attention from my looks. The other day, I, I was I was doing a production of the Cherry Orchard at the Actors Studio, and uh, the director, John Gould Rubin, said his friend came to see it, and all he could talk about was how beautiful I was. And John said he kept wanting to hear about the direction, but he never got it. He just got. I said, you know, when I was about twenty-four, I decided to not base my career on my looks but to be a serious actress so that I could have a long career and not have it fade when the beauty faded. And here I am, 81 years old, and now all I hear about is my beauty. (laughs) I don't know what happened. (laughs) There was a bend in the road somewhere. Um, When I look in the mirror, I don't see beauty. I look in the mirror, I say, who is that old lady and where does she come from? You know, What happened to the face that I think of when I think of myself, but uh, it's gone. I know I always got a lot of attention for my look, so um, I guess it was there, but I never identified with it, partly because I look so much like my mother. The beauty was always hers. So uh, I had to develop other things that were mine.
2: When you first started getting male attention because of the way you looked, did it feel... Exciting and it's like a source of power or, or was it a little scary?
0: Um, I think because I Didn't have a father. I had a, a Step I grew up with my stepfather mostly who was very critical of me and punishing that I never had that sit-on-daddy's-lap experience. I never had the um, approval of the fatherly figure. And so I was always kind of looking to men to give me that. So I don't think I felt powerful, um, nor did I feel scared. I felt like I needed it and was glad to get it. It It's probably not a healthy reaction, but (laughs) that's what it was. I think an absent father, not ever having that experience of a man who just loves you because you're you, is a big detriment. I think it's very hard for women to overcome that. Thank God I got to Lee Strasberg because when I When I got to him, he approved of me for me, and I had never had that, you know, without wanting sex from me.
2: Lee Strasberg ran the Actors Studio in New York. Ellen Burstyn wanted in. She called and asked for an interview, and that began a nearly 50-year relationship with the drama school. She's still a co-president of the Actors Studio, with Al Pacino and Harvey Keitel. It was
0: just um, a revolution in my psyche. A revolution or a revelation or both. What he really asked for was for people to be honest about who they were. And my whole um, journey had been to hide behind a mask of personality that I developed, you know. And he was, in very subtle ways, saying, that's not going to work here. It felt so vulnerable to be seen, but um, it's the beginning of my real life.
2: When you left Detroit at 18 years old and told your mother you were leaving, you were on your own, were you supporting yourself starting then? As a model. But were you paying all your bills? Oh, yeah. Was that scary? Leaving home and saying, I got this?
0: You know, when I think about it now, I'm scared for me. Uh (laughs) But I got on a Greyhound bus and I arrived and Dallas, Texas, because somebody told me they liked my type there. And I checked in a hotel whose bill I couldn't pay, confident I would go get a job, which I did. Um, And the same thing, I arrived in New York with 25 cents. You know, I don't know. I think I was stupid. I mean, I was certainly naive. But I just didn't seem to... Um, think ahead of what could go wrong, I guess in a way I didn't have any fear, I guess. I I mean, when I think about it now, I wouldn't get on a bus and go to Dallas, Texas, and check into a hotel with, I I think, maybe 50 cents in in Texas and hope that it'll work out all right. I don't know what I was thinking of, but I I just didn't have any... um, Doubt? I don't know what I didn't have. There was something I didn't have. I wasn't afraid. And I just did it and thought it'll all work out, and it did. So I can't explain that. Yeah. The forces pushing you
2: out of where you were coming from were greater than any forces that would keep you there, it sounds like. it
0: was. Just- oh, yeah. There was nothing that was keeping me in Detroit. No, not my family. or I had... Wanderlust. Is it wanderlust or wonderlust? I think I had both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to see the world. I really wanted to go to as many places as I could, as foreign as possible, and see how the rest of the world lived. I had hunger for that. And I was modeling as a way to make money to do that. Um, And I modeled for, I think, five years before I made up my mind to be an actress. I never had a lot of money, but I had enough to get by. So, speaking of a, a young woman with wanderlust, you
2: also, in those early months of, of leaving home, you discovered you were pregnant, and it was
0: 1950. That was before I left home. I that was still in you Detroit. Left home. Yeah. Uh, when I left home, I was 18. I think that was probably just before that, early 18. Yeah, at that time, there were no legal abortions. You could only get an illegal abortion. And that's not a pretty sight. And there's nothing but shame connected to that. And although I don't recommend abortion to anybody, I don't think it's a good thing to do. At the same time, I know that if women are pregnant and don't want to have the baby or not in any circumstances to take care of a baby, they will get an abortion one way or another. And if it's illegal, they will get an illegal abortion, as I did. And it's a scarring experience.
2: Did you go by yourself?
0: Yes. I had no one. I had no one to go with me. It's not a good way to go. It's not a good experience. It's harmful. And I would always, if I had the opportunity, counsel somebody, a girl, to not have an abortion, to have the child and give it up for adoption. But it has to be legal.
2: Is that because of what what you personally experienced having gotten an abortion, that you advise against
0: it? Yes. Yeah. I think it's a very um, traumatic experience. Not necessarily at the time, but later. It doesn't go away.
2: When you were married to your second husband, you were trying to have a, a child, and you discovered you were not able to have a biological child. Was that
0: related at all to the... Oh, totally. Ab- it was. Oh, yeah. The illegal abortion just, just botched me up so I couldn't ever have get pregnant again. That was part of the trauma. You adopted your son. hmm How did you find your son? Through a, a lawyer. I remember when I was in Iran, I was talking to this wonderful teacher, spiritual teacher in Iran, and he said, sometimes our children are our spiritual children. And sometimes their children are not our spiritual children. If we saw them on the other side, we wouldn't recognize them. We'd walk right by them. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do have the feeling that my son is my son. He is my son, period. There's no difference between... um, When you mother a child... I mean, I was... Astonished to learn that mother is a verb, Hmm. you know, and it's when you mother a child that the relationship is formed and you become the noun then. You become the noun by doing the verb. And
2: you've been in each other's lives since he was born, right? Or since early. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Since since the day he was born. Since the day he was born. Mm -hmm. He's 52 now. Can't believe it.
2: How did you, uh, when you were working, when you were a mother, how,
0: how did, what was your child care? Um, well, depending on where I was working, like, for instance, in, when, I was, when he was a baby, I was in Hollywood, and um, I had a, a nurse who came, and she often brought him to the set. I remember he was about eight months old. She brought him to the set and was holding him, I was in the makeup chair and the makeup artist Hit me, patted my face with a powder puff, and he started crying because it looked to him like I was being attacked <laughs> <laughs> um and later, I took him with me with um tutors, and then while I was after Alice doesn't live here anymore, he was with me, and he was in it. He played the little boy next door oh um. After that, he told me that he didn't want to travel with me anymore, that he'd found that when he got back, new cliques had been formed, and he was out. And so, although it was very good for him, as far as the schoolwork went, to have a tutor, that socially it was a problem. So from that point on, um, I stayed home with, you know, whoever it was my housekeeper at the time, and tutor if he needed it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That was his choice.
2: Yeah. So you you became Ellen Burstyn in midlife. How old were you when that became your name?
0: Um, in my 30s. Yeah. That was my husband's name. I took my husband's name. Yeah. Your third husband, Neil. My husband, Neil. Yeah, my third husband.
2: What were the first years of of your marriage like? How do you remember the
0: first years of your marriage? Well, he was a lot of fun. He was younger than I was. And um, he was talented. He was a writer and an actor. More successful as a writer than an actor. Um, We were in acting class together. We auditioned together for the Actors Studio. I got in, he didn't. But we... Right after we got married, we got into the 60s. So there was a lot of pot smoking and um, drinking and partying. We had a very good time. Uh, But then he got into LSD, and it seems to have triggered a latent psychosis, and he became permanently uh, psychotic. And then it was hell from that point on.
2: So it, did it feel like, just sort of overnight, he became sick?
0: No, it was a it was a, a period of about a year. I would say when he was doing LSD, and smoking pot, um, and he just started to get ideas. Um, that were. Eccentric. He was always a little eccentric, but then they got more and more bizarre. And he had a friend who he decided was Jesus, and he was John the Baptist, and he had a whole mythology created. And then it just evolved into really serious mental illness. And when did you realize that you weren't safe? Um I realized it wasn't safe when he kept his hands around my throat all one night, threatening to kill me. That was a pretty good clue, wasn't it? So then I started having to stay away from him, move, have protection and so forth.
2: Was that when you were still married? Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and when that happened that night, was it, clear to you that that was a line that had been crossed and you needed to get you and your son away or well, was it
0: when i read my diaries i was shocked to see how i would read something like that and then two days later i i i read an entry that said i guess my husband is a crackpot but he's awful cute and When I read that, I went, "What is the matter with you, girl? What does it take?" So it was, a, you know, a series of those kind of things until finally it was just it couldn't be ignored anymore.
2: This episode is brought to you by Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless
0: night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Oh. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did.
1: And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga.
0: Hellblade 2. Play it
1: now with Game Pass.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie
2: Millman, and I host a podcast called Design Matters from the TED Audio Collective. Every episode, I have conversations with designers, writers, artists, and other luminaries of contemporary thought... People like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, and Ashley Ford. We not only talk about their crafts, but how they design the arc of their lives, what they've learned, what obstacles they've overcome and how they've done it, and how they see the world. Join us for an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to this. Hey, I want to tell you about a podcast that I really enjoy called Search Engine. It's hosted by PJ Vogt, and each week he and his team answer these perfect questions. The kinds of questions that you ask at a dinner party and totally derail the conversation. Like episodes include, when do you know it's time to stop drinking? Does anyone like their job? How do you survive fame with Molly Ringwald? What are we going to do with all these cats? about feral cats and how they affect nature. And wait, is it unsafe to drink the water on airplanes? No, but you should definitely listen to the episode to find out more. I love listening to this show, and I usually find myself smiling the whole way through. And there's also at least one moment each episode where there's a line of writing that makes me hit pause and rewind just to admire the turn of phrase. If you find this world bewildering, but also sometimes enjoy being bewildered by it, check out Search Engine. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. I did this interview more than three years ago now, but I still think about moments from it all the time— We've had Ellen on the show since. She hosted an episode when I was on maternity leave last year. She interviewed her pal, Gloria Steinem. If you missed it, there's a link on our website and in our show notes. But one moment from this episode with Ellen Burstyn that has stuck with me is coming up. She describes how she spends her rare days off. She declares them a shouldless day. I have tried to seize on this in moments of quiet to allow myself to appreciate leisure and slowness, to not pick up my phone. And it's not easy. But now we have a new tool to help us go shouldless, the world's very first death, sex, and money mug. It declares on the side, I'm having a shouldless day. I cannot wait to curl up on a couch with this mug in my hands. You can see a picture of it at deathsexmoney.org slash donate. That's where you can go to support our show and get that mug when you become a member with a contribution of $8 a month. If you're already a Death, Sex, and Money member, thank you. And you can still get a mug. Details, again, at deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Or just text DSM to the number 70101. Thank you so much. On the next episode, hear our live show from Los Angeles with Nisi Nash, Alia Shawket, and Terry Coleman about what we learned getting through our 20s. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. Ellen Burstyn divorced her third husband, Neil Burstyn, in 1972. He struggled with mental illness and was violent. But it was a very different time when it came to protections for abused women. It wasn't until 1977 that New York passed a law allowing a married victim to bring criminal charges against a spouse. So Ellen didn't feel safe. And she was very much a public figure who often acted on stage in front of a dark audience you couldn't see. How did you
0: protect yourself? Um, Well, I kept my whereabouts hidden as best I could, and then he would find me. Um, Things like uh, opening night on Broadway for the same time next year, I had to have detectives. Um, I could never be alone. I kept people around me. I had other people live with me. Um, It was about ten years... Of that, I just couldn't, I could never be alone. And as a
2: woman, as you're experiencing this in your marriage, it's prior to a lot of the policy changes that came out of the women's movement, in particular around protecting wives who were being abused or wives who were under threat from husbands. D- did you feel like the authorities were... Uh, Appreciating that you were that you were threatened in your marriage. Oh,
0: not at all. When I called the police, they said uh, we don't mix in um, household problems, mm-hmm. you know. And I said he's threatened to kill me. And he said, "No, we don't. We don't respond." I said, "Well, what is it you do?" And he said, "We apprehend criminals when a crime has been committed." And I said. You mean I should call you if he actually kills me? He said, that's right. Hmm. He was perfectly, when he raped me, he was in his right to rape me. There was no such thing as a law against uh, somebody who was legally married, even though we were separated. He had the right to my body. Um... The police, oh, domestic affairs. We don't mix in domestic affairs. That's what they said. Did you report the rape? No, you don't. I mean, the, he had the right to it. Um, when we separated and I had the car, the insurance was in his name, and I called to have it changed to my name, and they wouldn't. It was denied. I told them my husband was in a mental institution at the time that we were separated and going to get a divorce and that he was mentally ill, not driving the car, and that I was driving the car, taking my son to school, and I needed the insurance in my name. No, it was denied. Why? On three bases. First of all, you're a woman. Oh, you're a a greater risk. On what basis? You're a woman. Uh, You're going through a divorce. And I said, wait a minute. You're telling me that you know my husband is psychotic and in a mental institution, but because he's a man, he's less of a risk than I am, who is paying for the insurance and paid for the car... And is the full support of the family, but I'm a woman, so I'm at greater risk. He said, What I'm telling you is we're not going to accept the transfer of insurance. That was it. So I had to keep it in my husband's name and pay it, even though it was in the mental institution. That's the way the law was then. So that's why that's out of that came Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore. <laughs> You know, that's the realization of a woman as a human being, not an appendage of a man. You know, that line that I put in, it's my life, it's not some man's life I'm helping him out with. That's what I learned in that period. Because I certainly had it in my head as I grew up that I was an assistant person to a man.
2: Alice doesn't leave her abusive husband, though. He dies.
0: Well, I didn't leave my abusive husband until he went crazy.
2: So you're, you're the breadwinner for your son at this point. You're
0: making the money. Always did, by the way, even before my husband got sick. He never had very successful career. So I was always the support of the family. I remember one night coming home, I had been shooting all day at a television show and I worked 12 hours. And I can't 12 hours is just a long day. That is a long day. It's the way it is in the movie business. And I came home and I walked in the door and my husband was sitting in front of the television set watching a sports event, baseball game or football game, or Something. There was a huge ashtray beside him, full of butts, and some empty beer cans. And when I walked in the door, he said, Hi, babe, what's for dinner? And I remember just having this little moment of, I guess you would call it what's wrong with his picture. But I wasn't sure. (laughs) It was like, um, um. But I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong there. You know, yeah. it changed. Yeah. But still, I think, you know, for
2: me, I was born in 1980. That that sense of something feels off, but I can't articulate what quite it is. It took some learning to be yeah. able to articulate yeah. when something feels off. I don't think that that's gone away for women.
0: I think that we have a natural impulse to serve. We like to serve um, a man dinner. You know, we like to get up and get him a cup of coffee. But that leads us down a path where it gets taken for granted, as though we are supposed to, as opposed to we want to. And one has to learn that it's not an obligation, it's um, a gift that we want to give, you know? But if it's not received as a gift, but as a duty, one starts to get their hackles up after a while.
2: Yeah. Are you currently in
0: relationship? Not currently. How do you like it? Well, it's good to be in relationships. I I like having love in my life. Um, I don't seem to have been so successful at it, having had three husbands. And I'm not counted um, lovers, but certainly more than one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But at this age, 81, I can't imagine sharing a space with someone I think I'm past that. Um, I can imagine having a companion, you know, who lived nearby in his own apartment. Um, But not having that, it's okay, too. Because um, I have a lot of love in my life. Especially my son. Um, And love of my work. And... Um, my friends. And to me, what's really important is having love in your heart to give. And I have that. So it's all right.
2: When your third husband committed suicide,
0: what did it feel like for you? Well, after all of the years of his mental illness and his stalking, Um, and breaking into my house and all of that um, it felt like an enormous relief I was very grateful to him for ending it, he he couldn't end his madness he couldn't control himself I thanked him for releasing us from the torture of his madness
2: That's a You thanked his spirit is kind of that he released you and your son and he released himself from the madness. It's it's a magnanimous way to say that you felt
0: relief. I did. I did. I had to. Yeah. I had to. I was afraid for my son and for myself for, I don't know how many years, certainly 10, it had to be a relief. I mean, I felt profoundly sad at his illness, deeply full of grief for the beautiful soul he had been before the illness. He was a funny, charming, talented, adorable guy. The tragedy was his mental illness, not his suicide. How old
2: were you when your mother passed away?
0: Mm, I don't know, uh, in my 50s, 60s, somewhere in there.
2: She saw you achieve great success in your career. Did, Did you, what was your relationship like at the end of her life? Well, it was always difficult.
0: I think in her later years, she was very regretful of how violent she had been when we were kids. As she said to me one time, "Well, I'd never do it again now that I see how much trouble it caused," and the trouble it caused was a rift in our relationship that was um, unhealable. I mean, I always saw her, uh, stayed in touch with her, and went to visit her, and and was as dutiful. A daughter as I could be, but there was so much trauma, physical abuse for my whole childhood that it doesn't make for a cozy, warm relationship, hmm. you know. I know she did the best she could. As she always said, well, you always had food on the table and a roof over your head, didn't you? Well, that's true. We did. But the, the love was absent. Mm-hmm. And that's, that becomes the material you have to deal with in your life to transform, you know? When you look at your, the stuff that got put into you and didn't get put into you, you say, okay, this is what I have to work with. This is the lead that I have to turn into gold. And you either get past it and grow up and say, okay, I guess I'm going to have to mother myself and father myself and learn how to do it, or then you're unhappy for the rest of your life. You know, that's not a good choice. So forgiveness is all. You know, if you. Hang on to regrets and anger and resentments. It just makes you a nasty person. So, you're a grandmother. mm mm-hmm. How many grandchildren do you have? I only have one grandchild. One gran- I have one son and one granddaughter, Emily. Where do they live? Uh, in Rockland County, where I used to live. They're about uh, an hour away. What do you like to do with your granddaughter? Well, she's a teenager, (laughs) and she texts a lot. Uh She texts all the time. I took her to Washington, and we had a tour of the White House. And uh, the private quarters, the Oval Office, everything. And then we went out to lunch, and she was texting. (laughs) So I texted her and said, are you enjoying your lunch? <laughs> she looked up startled. I said, well, I figure that's the only way to communicate. <laughs> she's very smart. She's very bright. And she's a lovely girl. But she's a teenager. Yes. And that's a whole <laughs> type of human being for a while. <laughs> I'm sort of waiting on the other end of the teenage years and hope that, This human being will appear who doesn't only text, you know, actually talks directly to you.
2: (laughs) So you're 81 years old. Mm -hmm. You are quite
0: busy with work. Very busy. Yeah.
2: Why work so
0: much at this point in your life? I'm good at it. And it feels good to do things that you're good at, you know? things that you've developed and learned and perfected to the best of your ability. It's your vehicle for excellence, and that feels healthy.
2: Hmm.
0: I like working.
2: And when you come to a day off after many days of working,
0: what do you do? I'm very lazy. Mm -hmm. I have what I call shouldless days, Today is a day where I, there's nothing I should do. So I only do what I want to do. And if it's nap in the afternoon or watch TV and eat ice cream, I get to do it. I had that kind of day yesterday. Shouldless. I like that. Shouldless days. I recommend them. Because what I figured out is we have wiring. You know, I have wiring in my brain that, that calls me lazy if I'm not doing something. God, you're so lazy. I, I can't imagine whose voice that is. Um, and that wiring's there. I, I haven't been able to get rid of it. But what I can do is I can put in another wiring. I can put in shouldless days. So when that voice goes off and says, you're being lazy, I turn to the other wiring in my brain that says, no, this is a shouldless day. And I'm doing what I want. I'm following the rules of a shouldless day. That's right. <laughs> That's right.
2: Yeah. I love that. So, when you think back on your career, what what do you feel?
0: What do you feel really proud of? The thing I'm most proud of is that my son is the most outgoing, loving, available, good-hearted fine human being, but somehow with all of the turbulence in my life and all of the unconventional upbringing he had, I didn't ruin him, Uh, that he survived it all with grace. And he's somebody, I'd rather be around him than anybody I know. You know, we have special days we take together and go to the museum or whatever, and there's nobody I enjoy being with more than him, and i'm I'm proud of him um that he survived my life <laughs> uh, and I'm proud of our relationship that it's so deep and solid and beautiful. So I would say that's the that's the one thing I can feel pride about and not be embarrassed to feel pride
2: when we first sat down and i told you the name of the show you 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 perked up when i said it was death was the first word what does that sort of bring up for you at this point in your life
0: well of course when you're 80 you see that row of pictures over there they're all dead they're all the important men in my life
2: who who are they
0: The first one with the car is my older brother, Jack, who taught me how to kiss. (laughs) The second one, Stephen Arnold, is an artist, an incredible artist, close friend who died of AIDS. The one in the middle is my brother, Steve, who died three years ago, if I counted the years right. I lose track of time easily. The next one is Brewjoy who was a, I studied healing with when I was working on resurrection and became a close friend. Mm. And the last one is Henry Madden, who was a lover for about five years. And they're all men that I was really close to and really loved. And they're all dead now. When you're 81, a lot of people have already died, you know. As somebody said, they're calling our class. <laughs> 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 um My younger brother, Steve's death, was the hardest thing that I ever experienced in my life because we were very close. I adored him. He was... When my mother, after she gave birth to him, she had um, problems that eventually uh, meant that she had to have a hysterectomy, but for the first eight months of his life, she was bedridden. So he was my baby. Mm -hmm. So he was in my bedroom, and I did the two o'clock feeding in the morning, and changed his diapers. So we were very, very close. He died of cancer when he was 70, and I was, my son and I were both there. I would not have known how to love as much as I do if I didn't have that baby brother. And it is a bigger mystery than death. And, of course, you always, you know, once I passed 60, uh, the way I felt was like you're looking down a tunnel and there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you realize it's getting closer. I wonder if Mary Oliver would let me read her great poem, When Death Comes. At this point, Ellen stood up and left the room and she came back
2: with this big scrapbook. This is beautiful. When did you make this book? A couple years ago. She flipped through decorated pages, some with pasted-in pictures of the Hudson River. That's right, lived in Rockland County. Other pages with typed poems on them.
0: And then she got to Mary Oliver's. Ready? When Death Comes by Mary Oliver. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn. When death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Isn't that a great point? It's beautiful. Yeah. I don't know what you're going to do with all the sirens in the background. <laughs>
2: Even as Ellen Burstyn read a poem about mortality and talked about her own death, she was still aware of how the scene was unfolding. She's not just an actress, she's also a director. So I probably shouldn't have been surprised when a few days after we talked, I got word she wanted me to come back.
0: Hello. Hi. So I went.
2: And she quickly ushered me back Um, into her bedroom.
0: Hi. She had something else she wanted to say. You ready? Um,. That was such a good question you asked me. How do, how do you think of yourself? And I realized after you were gone that I had never asked myself that question, nor had anyone else. And I answered you kind of superficially because I had just realized that I pictured myself in my Girl Scout uniform, and I was amused at that. Uh-huh. But that's not really a very full answer. That's a kind of self-complimentary <laughs> answer, being a, uh, being a good girl. And everybody's more complex than that. Everybody has their, this side that their ego likes to see, and their shadow side that they don't look at very often or don't want to see. And when I started thinking about that, I thought, you know, there's this whole, you know, a side that I don't normally admit to of being bossy and driven and (laughs) overly ambitious and um, wanting things my way. But the fact of the matter is I really think of myself when I ask myself that question as a work in progress. Someone in process. I've done the most with what I was given that I could... Well, I probably haven't done the most, but I've tried to do the most Mm -hmm. and failed a lot. You know, I know I'm a successful actress, but I don't feel I'm necessarily a successful person. Mm. You know, I still have a lot of areas that need work. Um, But I do strive to be better and to learn what each stage of life offers for development. And I don't know if I talked about before about letting go. That's the big lesson for me. That's a Buddhist concept of, you know, always letting go, not grasping on to what was or what you hoped to be, your expectations, your ideas about yourself, but with each moment being present in the moment and letting go of everything else. And that's where I am in my life now.
2: You know, it makes me think of... The Girl Scout on the
0: one hand, and
2: then the shouldless days that you talked about on the other hand, this mix of trying to be good, and then also trying to teach yourself that there are some days that you just don't have to do anything but be. (laughs) Right.
0: That's very good. Yeah. And it's well said. I hadn't put it together like that. But... That's when I meant when I said I'm overly ambitious. I'm always striving, yeah. you know, striving to be better, yeah. moving, hustling, yeah. and not sitting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so the the letting go is a is a shouldless state. That's very good.
2: That's Ellen Burstyn. She's currently on stage in New York in a production of As You Like It through October 22nd. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Jim Briggs, and Ann Squadron for their help with this episode. And we need your help in order to make this show. Join in with your fellow listeners with a donation. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash donate and get yourself an I'm having a shouldless day mug. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money. One last thing from Ellen Burstyn, inspiration
0: to water your houseplants. I've learned a lot from my plants. I learned that if a plant's not growing, it's dying, and that growth is a state of health. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex,
2: and Money from WNYC. It's opinion palooza season here at Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurtles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come my team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts.